Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. to share. We're continuing our series on a closer look at 12 ordinary men. Um, if you have, if you're a person who takes notes, tonight you're going to need to take notes. You're going to have to do a little work. I have a whole lot of scriptures for you. So I'm just kind of like letting you know that ahead of time, you know, so that you know. Um, last time we were together, I'm going to really kind of jump right in from there because since I have so much, I don't want to, you know, spend a whole lot of time on review. But the last time we were together, we were talking about the fact how um, Andrew, because that's the, the apostle that we're spending time on right now, he had um, an act or his act of faithfulness was he liked to minister to one person at a time. And he was known for bringing people to Jesus. That was sort of like what he was most known for doing. Um, and we talked about how you know, people can also be that way. It's not just Andrew that's that way. You may know people who they like to bring people to church or they like to minister to people one-on-one. -on -one. That's just something that they do. And one of the things that we're gonna spend a little time on now is I wanna be able to show you just how important it is when you do that. And we talked about a person by the name of Edward Kimball. You remember that? And oh, you did, oh, so good. It's making it so much easier for me. Um, Kimball had made the decision. He had a Bible class, okay, of teenage boys. That was sort of like what his emphasis was. And he, his personality was he was a very timid person. He was not boisterous. You know, he was, you can almost say Kimball was almost shy to a certain degree. But he knew that he wanted to speak to this person named D.L. Moody because Moody was in his class and Moody was not somebody who was, you know, he wasn't, I don't want to say, I don't like, I have to use the correct adjective. He knew he needed a little bit more help. He needed, you know, to kind of like guide him along a little bit more. So he decided to reach out to him. He made the decision to speak directly to Moody about Christ and about his soul because he really didn't feel like he was getting all that he needed in his particular Bible class. So he started downtown to the shoe store where this young Dwight Moody happened to work. And when he was nearly there, he was what I call battling thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. Because if you've ever decided yourself that you want to talk to a family member or a friend and you want to share the good news of Jesus, know that the enemy doesn't want you to do that. So the enemy is going to constantly try to come up with something to dissuade you from doing that. He's going to make you feel as if you're inadequate, you don't know what you're talking about. You're going to, one of the key things I hear all the time, well, I don't know where the scriptures are. I, I don't know if I can find them. You know, I, I'm not very glib. I don't speak very well. I mean, he will come up with things back from your childhood to keep you from being able to share the gospel. That's his job. Okay, well, understand that this is exactly what Kimball was going through at that moment. His heart was in the right place, but he was just kind of feeling like he wasn't going to be able to necessarily do the job and do it well. So much so, as I share with you, he passed the shoe store when he was going downtown. He literally passed the store because he was so battling with these thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. So then he just became determined and said, you know what, I'm just going to go to the store and just get it over with. And that was really the attitude in which he had. Well, he found Moody in the stock room where he worked in the shoe store and he was wrapping and shelving shoes. 
And Kemble, he doesn't even remember exactly what he said. That he doesn't remember. He just knew that he shared the good news of Jesus and the love of Jesus. He knew he did that. And he admitted that it wasn't the best appeal, but you know, that's what he did. He wasn't really even sure, which I'm gonna share with you in a minute, whether or not his appeal even worked. But Moody, at that point, gave his heart to Christ. Now, of course, D.L. Moody was used mightily by the Lord as a result of that, as an evangelist, both here in America and in England. His ministry made massive impact on both sides of the Atlantic, spanning most of the second half of the 19th century. Tens of thousands testified they came to Christ because of his ministry. Among Moody's converts were people like C.D. Studd. Now, that might not be somebody you ever heard of either. But he was a great pioneer missionary. And Wilbur Chapman, who himself became a well-known evangelist. Moody subsequently founded Moody Bible Institute. Now, that's something most of us have heard of, OK? Where thousands of missionaries, evangelists, and other Christian workers have been trained or have been trained during the past century and sent out into all the world, all of the different things that came from what it was that he instituted in this particular institute, which is kind of funny, a play on words. All that began, though, when one man was faithful to introduce another individual to Christ. Now, this is what I want you to see, because this I found extremely interesting. Edward Kimball as I said, was determined to win his whole Sunday school class to Christ. A teenager by the name of Dwight Moody tended to fall asleep on Sundays. But Kemble, undeterred, set out to reach him at work. And as I mentioned to you, his heart was pounding when he entered the shoe store where the young man worked. And he claims that he put his hand on his shoulder. And as I leaned over and placed my foot upon a shoebox, I asked him to come to Christ. But Kemba left thinking he had really totally botched the job. Moody, however, left the store that day a new person and eventually became the most prominent evangelist in America. On June 17, 1873, Moody arrived in Liverpool, England for a series of crusades. The meeting went poorly at first, but then the dam burst and blessings began flowing. Moody visited a Baptist chapel pastored by a scholarly man named F.B. Meyer, who at first disdained the Americans' <laughs> unlettered preaching. He really wasn't interested. But Meyer was soon transfixed and transformed by Moody's message. Now, I'm going to put a pen here. This is what's so important. It's not how many scriptures you know, and if you can feel as if you're glib, and you can give some whole big, great, gracious speech. It's the heart of the thing. Just like you've heard me say all the time, if you have a favorite movie or a favorite restaurant, you don't sit when you're getting ready to tell your friend about it. You don't go through all that trepidation. You just can't wait to pick up the phone and tell them, oh, I saw this movie. It was amazing. You don't think about it. It's just coming from your heart. That's all you have to do when it comes to sharing the gospel. Let it come from your heart. It's not about all of this. You're going to know more than they do because you already know about the gospel and they don't. Look at it that way. Okay, So you obviously are going to already know more. 
And this is what got to this guy Meyer. It was what was being said, not how wonderfully it was being presented. So at Moody's invitation, Meyer actually toured America. And at Northfield Bible Conference, he challenged the crowd saying, and I love this quote, quote, if you are not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? End of quote. That remark changed the life of a struggling young minister named J. Wilbur Chapman. See, I want you to follow the train here. Chapman proceeded to become a powerful traveling evangelist in the early 1900s, and he recruited a converted baseball player named Billy Sunday. Interesting name. Under Chapman's eyes, Sunday became one of the most spectacular evangelists in American history. His campaign in Charlotte, North Carolina produced a group of converts who continued praying for another such visitation of the spirit. In 1934, they invited evangelist Mordecai Ham to conduct a citywide crusade. On October 8th, Ham, discouraged, wrote a prayer to God on the stationery of his Charlotte hotel. And the prayer said, quote, Lord, give us a Pentecost here, Pour out thy spirit tomorrow, end of quote. His prayer was answered beyond his dreams when a central high school student named Billy Graham gave his heart to Jesus. Here is the point. It all started with that one decision of Kimball to make sure that the young man who didn't seem like he was catching what he was teaching in his class when he went to tell him, <clears throat> him sharing it with him, it then mushroomed and kept going and kept going to the point where whether you agree or disagree with Billy Graham and what he taught, you have to know that he is responsible for more people accepting Jesus than the average evangelist, definitely. And it all started still with the decision of this soft-spoken, timid man who was very shy, who wanted to reach out to one of his students. That, to me, I thought was so encouraging, and that's why I wanted to share it with you, because that should encourage each and every one of us, because we don't realize when we are sharing something with a person, you don't know where it's going to go from there. You really don't. That's the beauty of what? Seed, time, and harvest. You're planting the seed. You don't know what the harvest is going to be. When he went to that shoe store to talk to this little teenage young man, he had no idea that the seed he was planting there was going to produce a harvest like Billy Graham and all of the tens of thousands and beyond people whose lives he, in fact, impacted by sharing the gospel. Amen? So that's why we have to be encouraged and make sure that you're sharing the gospel. I mean, if you don't do it, who's going to? You can't expect the enemy and his cohorts to do it. That's our job. So this is exactly the way that Andrew usually seemed to minister, one-on-one. On one. Most leaders would love to have their churches actually populated by people with Andrew's mentality. Too many Christians think that because they can't speak in front of groups or because they don't have leadership gifts, they aren't responsible to evangelize. There are few who, like Andrew, understand the value of befriending just one person and bringing him or her to Christ. Some people see the big picture more clearly just because they appreciate the value 
of small things. Andrew fits that category. This comes through clearly in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, we all know that story, okay, where Jesus had gone to a mountain to try to be alone with his disciples. And as often happened, when he took a break from public ministry, the clamoring multitudes tracked him down. And it was just before Passover, the most important holiday on the Jewish calendar. That means it was precisely one year, okay, before Christ would be crucified. Suddenly, a huge throng of people approached. Somehow, they had discovered where Jesus was. Now, it was nearing time to eat. And bread would be the object lesson in the message. So Jesus, the message that Jesus was about and was preparing to preach to the multitude. So he made it clear that he wanted to feed the multitude. Now this I thought was really nice. This also shows us something else about Jesus. He had a spirit of what? Of hospitality. He didn't want all of these people sitting here and he wasn't going to give them anything. See, that can tell you a lot about a person. You know, you go to their house and you sit there and they don't even offer you a glass of water. I mean, you know, I mean, it just kind of makes you wonder, like, really? Am I really welcome here or what? And then it makes it worse, I guess, if they sit down to dinner and just like leave you in the other room. I mean, you know, so this is showing us that Jesus had that spirit of hospitality. So we need to have that too, right? I think so. So he asked Philip where they might find bread. Jesus is asking Philip, one of his apostles, where they might find bread. Now, John adds the editorial comment to stress the fact that Christ was sovereignly in control, even in these circumstances, in all circumstances. Turn with me to the book of John, John's Gospel, and we're going to look at the sixth chapter and the sixth verse. John's Gospel, the sixth chapter and the sixth verse. In the New King James Version, he says, but this he said to test him. He, meaning Jesus, for he himself knew what he would do. So when he asked Philip about going to get this bread, I mean, come on, he knew he was going to eventually feed these people. But of course, he wanted to see how was Philip going to respond. And in the, the Living Bible, it makes it clear. It says he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Okay, I mean, that makes sense. Philip did a quick accounting and determined... <laughs> that they only had 200 denarii in their treasury. Now, what does this mean? This is what it means. A denarius was a day's pay for a common laborer. So 200 denarii, which is obviously the plural, would be approximately eight months wages. Now, it was a significant sum, obviously. I mean, eight months of our wages, that's significant, right? But the crowd was so large that even 200 denarii was inadequate to buy enough food for them. So Philip's vision, this is so key, was overwhelmed by the size of the need. This is why I really pray that you are getting something out of this series, because I have to tell you, as I study for this series, I am being blessed over and over again because it's so many subtle things that you can put in juxtaposition to your own life because all of us have been like Philip at some point in time where we sit and the need just seems so much bigger and so much greater and we have no idea 
idea how we're going to be able to receive the victory in it. And we get a little weaker in faith than we need to be. Now, if some people don't want to admit that, okay, I will. I've been there, okay? So the good news is we can learn from this. We really, really can. Because here's what happened. He and the other disciples, they were really at a loss to know what to do. They really didn't know. Now, Matthew, recounting the same incident, he reports the disciples' response. So what I want you to do is turn with me to Matthew's gospel, and you're going to look at the 14th chapter and verse 15. Matthew's gospel, chapter 14, and we're going to look at verse 15. In the New King James Version, it says, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, you know that would be what some of us would say. Okay, the Living Bible says that evening the disciples came to him and said, it is already past time for supper and there is nothing to eat here in the desert. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy some food. See, to them, that was their way of handling the situation. And they felt like, just send them away. Let them just go. You know, hey, they can find something. <laughs> and this way, we don't have to start looking for this bread and all the stuff that you want to feed these people. Hmm. But Jesus, he answered them in the next verse. So just drop down. You're in Matthew 14. Drop down to verse 16. And this is what Jesus said in the New King James. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And in the um, Living Bible, he said, but Jesus replied, that isn't necessary. You feed them. Now, can you imagine what they must be thinking? They already have no idea how they're going to do it. And now you're telling us that, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> the disciples must have been taken aback by this. Jesus' demand seemed totally, totally unreasonable to them. But keep this in mind. God will never give you a demand that he has not already provided for because that's the character of the God that we serve. Oh, I love that. So at that point, Andrew spoke up. This is wonderful about Andrew. And you can actually turn to John's gospel. You were over there. Just turn right back to John. And we're going to be back in the sixth chapter, but we're going to look at the ninth verse because we're going to see how Andrew responded to this. And this is what he said in the New King James Version. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? And then in the Living Bible it says, Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a youngster here with five barley loaves and a couple of fish. But what, is, what good is that with all this mob? And in the message, it says, one of the disciples, it was Andrew, brother to Simon Peter, said, there's a little boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but that's a drop in the bucket for a crowd like this. Now, of course, even Andrew knew that five barley loaves and two small fish would not be enough to feed 5,000 people. But in his typical fashion, he brought the boy to Jesus anyway. Now, why do you think he did that? Keep in mind, as we learned earlier in the series, because this is important, the fish were the size of sardines. 
So now you just think about that, okay? Here he is with five barley loaves and two little sardines, and this is gonna feed 5,000 people, but yet, this is the key. We should know that Andrew always went to Jesus without reservation. He introduced people to him, and if there was a challenge or concern, he went directly to the master. Can we say the same thing? Okay, he didn't have any doubt. He didn't waver for a second, whatever it was. He knew, I will go directly to Jesus. But can we really always say the same? Jesus had commanded the disciples to feed the people, and Andrew knew that he would not issue a command without making it possible for them to obey. Even for us, he never gives you a vision, whatever that may be, without provision. Know that. If he gives you the vision to even want to do it, he's already made the provision. Don't ever think he's going to do that. You have to remember the character of the God that we serve. He's not like the people you know. Okay. <laughs> I'm serious. And we have a tendency sometimes to do that. We bring him down to the level of our understanding of the relationships that we've had. And that's so, so serious. My heart goes out to people who have lived in, say, single-parent homes. I'll, I'll never forget a conversation I had with actually a friend of mine who never met her dad. And, I mean, she had a wonderful life. Her mother did a great job with her, but she never met her dad. So for her to receive from the Lord, there was always, like, a, it was harder for her. And one day I was sitting, it was so weird, I was sitting on a swing set. Our kids were out playing. And I was like, why is it so difficult? I mean, because to me, I'm like, if God said he's going to do something, and that's your heavenly father, of course he's going to do it. But for her, it was not easy. And then that's when the Holy Spirit shared with me, aha, it's not easy because she never had that fatherly relationship in the natural. So for her to... to feel that this God whom she cannot see is actually going to do all of this for her, it was, it was really, really very mind-boggling. So she was always wrestling with that. Whereas for me, I, I had a wonderful father in the natural, so I'm like, okay, well, my father in the natural did this. God, oh, come on. <laughs> I know he's going to do all this. So it does make a difference. But we have to be sensitive to that. And be sensitive to that also even when you're sharing with people and ministering to people because that is real for folks. That really, really, really is. So for Andrew, it was real to him to know that I can go to Jesus and whatever the situation is, He's got it handled. So he just boldly would go ahead and go. So Andrew, he did the best he could. He identified the one food source available. Wasn't a lot, but that, it was there, okay? And he made sure Jesus knew about it. Again, do we do the same? You go to the doctor, you get a negative report. Now see, it is true. You're not supposed to go run, pick up the phone, and start telling everybody the negative report that you got from the doctor. That is not what you're supposed to do. But you are supposed to get into your prayer closet. And you are supposed to be able to say, you know what, Father? This is what they have said. But I know that I believe the report of you, the Lord. You need to be able to identify what it is you're standing against with your Heavenly Father, not all these other folks, okay? With Him. And then have faith and trust and know he's got you and he's going to take care of whatever needs to be done 
Something in Andrew seemed to understand that no gift is insignificant in the hands of Jesus. That is so special to me when you think about that. No gift is insignificant in the hands of Jesus. John provides a narrative of this. Okay, go back. You already you were in John, the sixth chapter. Just drop down to verses 10 through 13. John 6, verses 10 through 13. And I'm going to share it with you first out of the New King James Version. And starting with verse 10, it says, Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now, there was so much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Notice what it says, the men, okay, in a number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, notice he didn't say they were just sitting there tasting it. They were full, okay? When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Another thing we can learn, we are not wasteful, okay? We should not be wasteful people. Whatever it is that you have, you have it because God has blessed you with it. Do not be wasteful with it, okay? So therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Now the message says, Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was a nice carpet of green grass in this place. They sat down, about 5,000 of them. Then Jesus took the bread and having given thanks, gave it to those who were seated. He did the same with the fish, all ate as much as they wanted. When the people had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, gather the leftovers so nothing is wasted. They went to work and filled 12 large baskets with leftovers from the five barley loaves. To me, that is amazing. What an amazing lesson, really. That was, <laughs> so, that, it, it's the fact that so little could be used to accomplish so much was a testimony to the power of Christ, when you think about that, okay? No different than you go to the doctor, he gives you a prognosis of something that he does not have an answer to, and he can't figure it out. But you believe God, and you come out on the other side of it. Wow, this just, okay. This happened to me when I was nine years old. <laughs> um, I was stricken with something that they then later on found out to be pityriasis rosea. But when I was nine years old, nobody knew what it was. And I looked like a monster, literally. I had all of these, like, I, just encrustations and boils all over my skin, head to toe, in my scalp, underneath my eyelids. I mean, I literally looked like a monster. Um, I was quarantined away from school because they, they didn't know what it was. So it was like, we don't know what this is. Um, I went to a wonderful internist, one of the best. I mean, he really, really was good. And he was like, I really don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know what this is. Now, you kind of know. See, this is why mothers, let me tell you something, mothers will always have a special place in my heart because my father I know loved me. Wonderful man. But I got to tell you, he left me to my mother. <laughs> He would come in and kind of like, how you doing? <laughs> like, 
wave, you know, and he, I knew he was there, was checking on me, but it was kind of like, okay, I'll get you mommy, you know, because it was like, and I really, I look like a, just a horrific, but my mother never gave up because my mother kept saying, you know what? The doctors don't know what this is, but that's okay because God created you and he did not create you for you to leave here at nine years old. So it's okay. We're going to be fine. And she gave me oatmeal baths, which I thought was kind of like, ugh. You know? But it was like, no, this is soothing. You know? And she just, I mean, she never seemed like she had a moment of doubt. She just knew I was going to be fine. And I remember one day she set me out in the sun. And I'm like, why are you sitting me in the sun? I mean, I look horrible. She said, that's okay. And she put me, I think this is funny when I look back at it. She put me in the back of the house. <laughs> she didn't want anybody passing by, I guess, to see this. But it was like, no, 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 you'll be fine. The sun is good because it's got vitamins in the sun. And I just want you to have, and fresh air, it's very good. And I was like, oh my gosh. I, you know, it's something because they never came up with, they never gave me any medicine. They never knew what it was. And then all of a sudden, well, it wasn't all of a sudden, it left the same as it came. And they never had an answer. And then about maybe three years later, the same internist, because this was really trying, he was trying to find it, he came up with some medical journal that discovered that this was something that could be common in certain Native American Indians, which is why I guess they didn't know as much about it because they didn't treat, they treated the Native American Indians sort of like they treat some of the black people here where a lot of things about us they didn't know. So I was like, oh, but the point is, and the point I'm making is, the doctors didn't have an answer, but it didn't matter because my mother left it in the hands of Jesus and his power took care of that, which is why I'm standing here today. That's a wonderful thing. And that just came to me. So hopefully that was for somebody who was not in my notes, but whatever. <laughs> okay. So this should really, all of this should encourage each and every one of us to know that since the power of the entire Godhead dwells within us and dwells, I love that word, because it means that it abides, it lives, it takes up residence, never to leave. That's what dwell means. The Godhead is in you. So when you think about that, we really are unlimited, unlimited in every single area of our lives. That, I mean, if you can't get excited about that, come up at the end, I will pray for you. <laughs> okay. So our Lord Jesus himself taught the disciples that very same lesson. Now I want you to turn to Luke's gospel. And we're going to look at the 21st chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 4. Luke's gospel, the 21st chapter, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to share it with you first out of the New King James. And it says, And he looked up and saw the rich putting gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites, which are really two very small copper coins. We could almost say they were like two pennies, okay? And so he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in 
all the livelihood that she had. I absolutely really, really like that. Um, if you look at verse three in the Amplified, it says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in, and here's the qualifier, proportionally more than all of them. For they all put in gifts from their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on, which makes it even more personal. And um, the message in verse three says, the plain truth is that this widow has given by far the largest offering today. All these others made offerings that they'll never miss. Absolutely not. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. Now, in other words, the poor person who gives everything that he or she has is giving a greater gift than rich people who, who gave much more out of their abundance. Think about it. God's ability to use a gift is in no way hindered or enhanced by the size of that gift. We just saw that with the little sardines, okay, the five barley loaves. And it is the sacrificial faithfulness of the giver, not the size of the gift, that is the true measure of the gift's significance. I will say that again, because to me it bears repeating. It is the sacrificial faithfulness of the giver, not the size of the gift, that is the true measure of the gift's significance. Think about it. If you only have $20 to your name, now, hopefully that's not the case, but you know, but think about that, okay? If you only have, because $20 now is not as much as it used to be, but let's just think about that. If you only have $20 to your name and you're believing God, because $20 is not a lot in Manhattan, especially, okay? And you offer it to him, your heart is attached to that offering. There is no way it's not, because you have given all that you've had, okay? Whereas, if you have $100,000 to your name and you offer him $1,000, you still have 99,000 left. So your heart is not attached in the same way. I mean, I'm not saying your heart isn't attached at all, but it's not the same. Because you can just go, okay, well, you know, tomorrow I gotta pay my mortgage, it's not 99,000, so you're still fine. You can still go eat, you can still do everything it is that you need to do. Correct? Now, how can I say this? Simple. You still have confidence, if you have $99,000 left, that you can still eat, drink, and provide for yourself with that money that's remaining. Now, I'm not saying this for the rest of your life, but when you give the offering, it's enough to carry you through. You're not really concerned. You may apply faith to your offering, but not as much faith is really required. When you give all, and that leaves nothing out, all, okay, that you have, your heart and every single ounce of faith is attached to it as you are believing God for the harvest as soon as possible. I mean, you need that like immediately. Could you agree with that? Okay, now this is often a difficult concept for the human mind to comprehend, but somehow Andrew seemed instinctively to know that he was not wasting Jesus's time by bringing such a paltry gift. It is not the greatness of the gift that counts, 
but rather the greatness of the God to whom it is given. Andrew set the stage for the miracle. Again, we can all be encouraged to that. Each and every one of us are born with gifts and talents. Our, our, our gift will make room for itself. All we have to do is make up in our mind to give it to the Lord to use. And when we do that, I'm telling you, we, you, you become amazed at what he does with what you think is some little insignificant, no big deal, and look at what he can do with it. But you have to be willing to give it to him and trust him to do with it what he chooses. So, of course, Jesus didn't even need to have the boys lunch in order to serve the crowd. He knew that. He could have created food from nothing just as easily. But the way he fed the 5,000 illustrates the way God always works. He takes the sacrificial and often insignificant gifts of people who give faithfully, and he multiplies them to accomplish monumental things. That's exactly what he did in this instance. Some people won't play in the band unless they can hit the big drum, okay? They want to be the, they, they want you to hear them if nobody else. Now, James and John, they had that tendency. Okay, we're going to get on them soon. So did Peter. We already know Peter did, okay? But not Andrew. He is never named as a participant in the big debates. He was more concerned about bringing people to Jesus than about who got the credit or who was in charge. He had little craving for honor. We never hear him say anything unless it is related to bringing someone to Jesus. We could all want to be a little bit more like Andrew, okay? Andrew is the very picture of all those who labor quietly in humble places. Turn with me to Ephesians, and we're going to look at chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Ephesians 6, verses 6 through 8. If we look at it, oh, I cannot, okay. Okay. Ah, uh, we're going to look at it in the Amplified, because time is kind of moving quickly. So we're going to look at it in the Amplified, because I want you to see the qualifiers. Not in the way of eye service, here's the qualifier, working only when someone is watching you, okay, and only to please men. But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with goodwill, as to the Lord, and not only to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. If we look at it in the message, I really like the message because it says, servants, respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye to obeying the real master, Christ. Don't just do what you have to do, to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master, and the master meaning the Lord, okay? Regardless of whether you are slave or free. So again, we know that that's what we're supposed to do 
and we need to do it no matter what. Um, this is a lesson that many Christians today would do well to actually learn by. Well, first of all, going back to Andrew, I want you to realize that when you think about Andrew, he, he's not an impressive pillar like Peter, James, and John. So much is written, you know, about Peter. I mean, we spent, I don't know how many weeks on Peter, okay? You don't hear that much about little Andrew. But he was an humbler stone. That's how I really like to think of him. He was one of those rare people who was willing to take a second place and to be in the place of support. He did not mind being hidden as long as the work was being done. Oh, I absolutely love that about him. And that is the lesson that many Christians today would do well to learn. Scripture cautions against seeking roles of prominence, and it warns those, oh, this is interesting, who would be teachers, that they face a higher standard of judgment. Turn with me to James, and we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Okay, James chapter three, verses one and two. I'm gonna share it with you first out of the New King James Version, and it says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now, if we look at this in the Amplified, because you know I love the qualifiers, it says, not many qualifier of you should become teachers. Here's the qualifier, serving in an official teaching capacity, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who are teachers will be judged by a higher standard because we have assumed greater accountability and more condemnation if we teach incorrectly. For we all stumble and sin in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, never saying the wrong thing, he is a perfect man. Here's the qualifier, fully developed in character without serious flaws, able to bridle his whole body and rein in his entire nature, taming his human faults and weaknesses. And the message says, don't be in any rush to become a teacher, my friends. Teaching is highly responsible work. Teachers are held to the strictest standards, and none of us is perfectly qualified. We get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouths. If we could find someone whose speech was perfectly true, you'd have a perfect person in perfect control of life. Hmm, thought that was really, really interesting too. Jesus taught the disciples something very important in Mark's gospel. So turn really quickly to Mark. We're going to look at chapter 9, verse 35. Mark's gospel, the ninth chapter, the 35th verse. In the Amplified, it says this, sitting down to teach, he called the 12 disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all in importance and a servant of all. In the expanded Bible, it says, Jesus sat down and called the 12 apostles, the 12, to him, he said, whoever wants to be the most important first must be last of all and servant of all. 
And then the message says he sat down and summoned the 12. So you want first place? Then take the last place. Be the servant of all. Hmm. So as far as we know, when you really think about it, it takes a very special kind of person to be a leader with a servant's heart. You'll find leaders, but do they have a servant's heart? It takes a special person to be that way. And Andrew was like that. He really was. And as far as we know, Andrew never preached to multitudes or founded any churches. He never even wrote an epistle. He isn't mentioned in the book of Acts or any of the epistles. Andrew is more a silhouette than a portrait on the pages of scripture. In fact, the Bible does not record what happened to Andrew after Pentecost. Whatever role he played in early church history, he remained behind the scenes. Tradition says he took the gospel north. He was ultimately crucified in Achaia, which is a, north, which is a southern part of Greece near Athens. One account says he led the wife of a provincial Roman governor to Christ, and that infuriated her husband. He demanded that his wife recant her devotion to Jesus Christ, and she just refused to do it. So the governor had Andrew crucified. By the governor's orders, those who crucified him lashed him to his cross instead of nailing him. Now, lashing him means instead of nailing him, they just use like a cording or rope, which is really a lot more painful in, in the long run, in order to prolong his sufferings. That's exactly what this governor wanted to happen. By most accounts, he was hung on the cross for two days. That's ridiculous. Two days exhorting passerbys to turn to Christ for salvation. So here is this man on the cross, and he is still encouraging people, okay, regarding the gospel. That's something else. After a, and the other thing to know about him is tradition says that the cross that he was on is called a saltir, which means it's an X. So instead of it being the traditional way as we know it, it was actually an X, and that is known as a saltir, spelled S-A-L-T-I-R-E. That was the X-shaped cross that he was crucified on. And after a lifetime of ministry in the shadow of his more famous brother and in the service of his Lord, he met a similar fate as theirs, remaining faithful and still endeavoring to bring people to Christ right to the end of his life. And we have to end there because my time is up. Wow. Anyway, so Andrew was a very, very, very interesting man when you think about it. And I just, I, I, I don't know. To me, I get so much out of it because he was a behind the scenes kind of person. Quiet, he didn't need a whole lot of, you know, he was unlike so many people, you know, that we may know, but that encourages us. We don't have to be all grandiose. We can just be quiet if we choose to be and just take one person at a time. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. 
If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.